0: Hello, and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. It's getting really close. Two more weeks until I am next out in public doing a public talk. I'm going to be in San Francisco, in the Presidio, at the Internet Archive on October 21st to keynote their From Way Back to Way Forward 25th anniversary celebration. And then November 5th through 6th, I will be presenting a virtual pre-recorded keynote for Seagull or CGL that you can pick up and watch. This has been a busy week. Since I last spoke to you, the paperback edition of Attack Surface, the third Little Brother book, came out. And to celebrate, for the rest of the month of October, I am offering a bundle of all three audiobooks, Little Brother, Homeland, and Attack Surface, normally $70 in DRM-free glorious recording with Will Wheaton and Amber Benson and Kirby Haywood. And for the rest of this month, you can get them for $30, $30. This is not an offer I am likely to re-offer, so this is your chance. If you want to get a Stellar Bargain, go to craphound.com shop, and you will find it there. I have continued to work on Picks and Shovels. This is the second book in a new series that will be coming out in 2023 and 2024, starring a, a kind of hard-fighting forensic accountant and technologist called Martin Hench, Marty Hench who fights corruption with spreadsheets. Picks and Shovels is his first adventure. It's a flashback installment in the series, and it's set in the early 1980s in Silicon Valley when the first PCs were really hitting the market and when there were all kinds of crazy grifters offering all kinds of crazy PCs. My recovery from my surgery continues to go well. I'm nearly at the five-week mark from the hip replacement that I had in September. And I'm already planning the next one of these. I'm going to be having my other hip replaced in January. And I've figured out from my surgeon what I'm going to need to do in order to keep my femur this time. I'm going to retain my femoral head. I'm going to have it casted so that I can make a bronze or a brass cane topper. And I'm also going to pickle it and put it on the back of our bar as an ornament. I grew up with a grandfather who kept 100 gallstones in a jar on his desk that had been removed. And uh, I guess it's inherited. My wife has prohibited me under any circumstances from trying to make soup stock with it. So you're safe from any experiments on those lines. This week, I'm going to read to you my latest Medium column, a column called Hope, Not Optimism. And this is a column that articulates a theory of change. And it was spurred by a correspondence with a podcast listener who wrote to me to say that they felt very discouraged when they read my daily newsletter and learned about all the terrible stuff going on in the world and asked how I avoid being discouraged. The reality is that I don't entirely avoid being discouraged, but I have something I do about it. And that's what this column is about. Hope, not optimism. Fatalism has no theory of change. From doctoro.medium.com I've been an activist all my life, literally. I attended my first demonstrations in a stroller, and that's reflected in my work, from the essays and blog posts I've published for 20 years to the dozens of books I've written, both fiction and nonfiction. To be an activist is to want to change the world. To change the world, you need two things. First, an understanding of what's wrong with it, and second, a theory of how to make it better. Much of my work focuses on the former, documenting, analyzing, and tracking injustices, dysfunctions, and emergencies. My essays are a form of public note-taking that help me break down and understand these complex phenomena. I'm keenly aware that a steady diet of my nonfiction is a little bleak. In my novels, the characters generally chart a course from a bad world to a better one. That's how fiction works, after all. Plots are smooth ascending gradients, In which people try to solve problems of increasing complexity and urgency until they reach a climax. That's a moment where the stakes cannot be raised any higher, and they either succeed, which is comedy, or fail, which is tragedy. Plotting versus activism. That's not how the real world works. The real world is messy in a way that novels are not, because the real world has so many confounding factors, contradictory impulses, and unknowable hidden variables. We cannot solve it the way we might solve a plotting problem in a story. It's a fool's errand even to try. Mapping out the terrain, all the things that we might do to make things better, all the ways that they can go wrong and what we should do in response, is an exercise that would take so long that merely outlining the process is a waste of time. By the time that outline was done, the terrain would have been changed so drastically that you'd need to start over computer science to the rescue. If you've ever studied computer science, this might sound familiar. There are a lot of problems we try to solve computationally that we can't ever fully optimize. Complex data sets that are so large that fully analyzing them is a non-starter. By the time the program finished running, the data would have changed and the output would be useless and you'd need to start over. Long ago, computer scientists made their peace with the inability to determine perfect solutions to complex problems. In computer science, it's normal to solve complex problems non-deterministically. Rather than computing the best route through a complex problem, we compute a good enough route through the data, trading efficiency for flexibility and rules for rules of thumb. Consider the ant. There are many of these rules of thumb, heuristics in computer science jargon, but the one that informs my approach to social problems is hill climbing. To understand how hill climbing works, think of an ant trying to find high ground. The ant is constrained by its forward-facing eyes. It can't just look around and find the highest peak in its vicinity. Instead, the ant can pull its many legs and determine which leg is resting on the highest ground, That is, which step it can take to most steeply ascend the gradient it's adjacent to. It climbs one step in that direction and repeats the process. Now which of my legs is on the highest ground? One step at a time, the ant can climb to the highest local peak without any foreknowledge of the terrain. The Hill Climbing Theory of Change As activists... We are on unknowably complex, constantly shifting terrain. Worse, the terrain is adverse to us. It doesn't change randomly. Our opponents take steps to alter it to block our ascent towards our social goals. Reactionaries roll back voting rights, labor rights, reproductive rights, and other human rights with the goal of hemming in our freedom of action, forcing us to squander our precious energy and resources just to live. Even if voter suppression efforts don't stop you from voting, the extra day you have to spend traveling to a distant DMV for your driver's license or the missed wages you lose from having to line up all day at an overburdened polling place steals hours and resources you might spend organizing with your allies or just taking care of sleep, nutrition, child rearing, and other essentials. This complexity means there isn't a clear or even plausible path from where we are to where we want to be. We're stuck at the bottom of a mist-shrouded hill whose frequent rock slides and unpredictable weather mean that we can't plot our ascent. We can't even see it. That's where hill climbing fits in. If you can see just one way, any way, to improve your situation, no matter how seemingly small, then you will ascend a step up the hill, you will find a new vantage point, and new courses of action will be revealed. Take note of these. Determine which one gets you the furthest towards your goal. Take another step and reassess. One step at a time. Ascend the gradient. The four food groups. In his 1999 classic, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, Lawrence Lessig argues that our social outcomes are determined by four forces. Code, that which is technologically possible or impossible law, that which is legally permitted or prohibited, markets, that which is profitable or unprofitable, and norms, that which is socially acceptable or unacceptable. In my theory of change, these are the four cardinal directions for our metaphorical ants' journey, the four legs that we can pull at each juncture that tell us which step we can take to most swiftly climb the gradient towards a better world. For example, If you're worried about the unfair market for creative labor, you could try something normative, like asking people to buy music on artist-friendly platforms like Bandcamp, rather than streaming it on monopolistic dirty dealers like Spotify. You could try something commercial, like founding Bandcamp and offering artists a better shake. Or technological, like building more accurate metadata services so that payments can be more fairly dispersed. Or legal, like reforming copyright reversion rights so artists can exercise leverage over monopolistic entertainment companies. As the above example shows, each tactic opens space for others. Change the normative expectation about whether eating meat is responsible, given its carbon footprint, and you create a market for low-carbon plant-based meals, and you encourage food scientists to create better meat alternatives, which opens political space and creates the political will for stricter regulation of meat production. This suggests a method. If you feel hopeless and out of options, stop to check whether you can switch directions and still climb the gradient. Do you despair because you've been writing free and open-source software for decades, but all your friends are still locked in wall gardens? Maybe you need to switch to volunteering at the local library or makerspace to teach people how to use free software, a switch from code to norms. Or maybe you need to help a refurbisher outfit laptops with Ubuntu or another free OS, a switch from code to markets. Or maybe you need to talk to your town council, school board, or other local authority about changing their procurement rules to favor free and open code, a switch from code to law. Solutionism, Consumerism, Proceduralism, and Political Correctness This also provides a new gloss on critiques of technological solutionism, consumerism, proceduralism, and political correctness. Each of these critiques zeroes in on the foolishness of relying on a single tactic to solve complex problems, like banning predatory lending, law, or boycotting an exploitative company, markets, or extracting and publishing a transparency report, code, or marching for justice, norms. It's true, none of these tactics on their own will address complex, deep rooted social problems, but each of them represents a potential pathway that we can ascend when the other routes are blocked. When Washington Gridlock lets predatory lenders exploit your comrades, a mutual aid society can save your numbers from usury. This not only keeps them out of debt traps, but also frees them to join the political project of banning payday lenders and agitating for a living wage. Of course, mutual aid and other forms of organizing depend on communication and coordination tools, so maybe you can write some code to make that happen. And if you're not a coder, maybe you can become a tester who helps toolsmiths by producing detailed accounts of where and how their code confused you, so that other people will have a smoother road. Small pieces, loosely joined. Finding a tactic and pursuing it is hard, but convincing other people to pursue it with you will be even harder. Establishing consensus on what needs doing can take longer than doing it, and tactical splits have broken many movements. The hill climbing method doesn't depend on unity of tactics or close coordination between different groups. Instead, it allows each individual or collective or affinity group to pick a tactic that moves them up the hill towards their goal, with the understanding that allies with different priorities, skills, and vantage points can leverage their successes for more success. Your investigation calling attention to a gig economy's poor labor practice can help me raise funds to legally challenge its business model while someone else organizes a boycott and a third person builds tools to help gig workers defeat the app's most exploitative tricks. The less time we all have to spend agreeing on tactics and timing, the more time we have to actually advance those tactics. Fuck Optimism. It's easy to be discouraged by the genuinely fucked-up state of the world and the giddy power of its monsters. The point of this method isn't to make you optimistic about where things are headed. Optimism is just a form of fatalism, a view of the world in which our deeds are irrelevant to the outcome. No matter what I do, things will get better. It may seem like optimism is the opposite of pessimism, but at their core, optimists and pessimists... Share this belief in the irrelevance of human action to the future. Optimists think things will get better no matter what they do. Pessimists think that things will get worse no matter what they do. But they both agree that what they do doesn't matter. Fuck optimism. The hill climbing method isn't optimistic, it's hopeful. Hope Punk. Hope is a method. If I do something about this situation, I might change it enough so that I can do something else about this situation. An optimist decides not to equip the Titanic with lifeboats because it is unsinkable. A pessimist doesn't bother to swim when the ship sinks and is lost at sea. To be hopeful is to tread water, because so long as you haven't gone to the bottom, rescue is still possible. It's not a sure thing and you may have to try something else if you can figure out another tactic, but everyone who gave up sank. And everyone who has fished out of the sea kept treading water. Hope is the necessary but insufficient precondition for survival. Stranger than fiction. Novelists have the luxury of radically simplifying the world to create streamlined toy worlds where you can map a satisfying direct path from start to finish. Take it from a novelist, that is not how the real world works. Here in the real world, the terrain is unknowably complex, adversarial, and can only be traversed by rules of thumb, because any map we create will be out of date, before the cartographer's ink dries. As we grope our way up the hill, we will meet with many dead ends that will cause us to descend a ways, to see if another approach will take us to a higher peak. Hill climbing only gets you to the top of whatever hill you find first, and to find a taller one you'll have to go to the bottom and strike out in another direction. It's a frustrating and even painful method. It's inefficient and it's messy, but then so is the world. And the alternative is hopelessness and sinking straight to the bottom. Well, that's this week's column. You know, after I wrote this, I found an article on Aeon about the work of Hannah Arendt and what she wrote about hope. And she wrote a book, uh, or an essay, rather, in 1964 called The Destruction of Six Million, in which she briefed against hope. And it turns out that what I call optimism, she calls hope. It turns out that she had much the same view as I do about the relationship of fatalism to fatality and about how the willingness to do stuff is critical and far more important than the belief that things will be fine. And so it was very fascinating to read that. The essay is online for free. And let me find you the title again. It's called The Destruction of Six Million, published in 1964 by Hannah Arendt in Jewish World. I recommend it to you. It's quite a piece. Anyway, I will talk to you next week. Uh, By then, my hip should be healed enough that I can even start swimming, which is a remarkable thing. If you are contemplating a hip surgery, I can recommend it from this side of it. My surgeon even says that I'll be able to go skiing at Christmas after a mere like four months hip surgery in September skiing at Christmas. That's pretty amazing. Anyway, I hope you have a great week and I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0 or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context. This song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of Arn, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.